This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Emma Westwood and we have our special guest presenter, Mike Bartlett, back in the cave. This is the first time I think you two have met in the studio, Emma, Mike, Mike, Emma. Hello. Hello, Emma. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you (laughs) in the studio. That's right. (laughs) Three of us are going to talk about some films tonight. We're going to uh, talk about Sofia Coppola's much-anticipated new film, The Beguiled, plus Baby Driver, the new film by Edgar Wright. And we're going to be playing you an interview that I did last week with Wright, where we discuss things like soundtracks, popular culture, and Wright's favourite line from the film. Um, we're also, in just a moment, going to talk about It Comes at Night. But first, the the, the kind of the, the film world and popular culture world at large got some really ordinary news this morning when two major figures uh, we found out had died. George A. Romero being one of them. I don't think we can underestimate his contribution specifically to horror but to popular culture in general. Mm. We decided we're not going to go into length right now on Romero and his importance. We might dedicate an entire segment of the show next week to, to talking about him. We might look at a specific film. We've got to work out the details yet, but he's kind of that important. We'll just have a silent weep for the time being. Yeah. Well, I know. I, w- I will weep. I am a big fan. So you're a huge yeah. fan. I mm. mean, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead are just two of the most important films from that genre. Mm. But, but you know, also the way they impacted popular culture at large. But we can't really overestimate his significance. Yes. So we're going to try to pull ourselves together, and we'll yes. <laughs> and we'll pay Take tribute to him properly next week. And we also want to now mention Martin Landau, the the, the, the gorgeous American actor who who died as well. Landau probably best known for his performance in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. And also yeah. when he played Bella Lugosi in Ed Wood, the film he won an Oscar for. Yeah, rightly so. That was great. I kind of, riffing off the top of my head, I can't even, um, you know, there's very few Martin Landau f- films I can think of, but but I think that's because he was in actually so many when it comes down to it. He has a really huge history. I'm DB him. Um, <laughs> Thomas yeah, and Tell doing that. Well, I know yeah. it goes all the way back to, uh, is it North by Northwest was the first film he appeared oh, in? Oh, yes. He had um, a kind of almost silent role in that, didn't he? He was kind of the more menacing side, um, evil side. The henchman. Kick. Yeah, the henchman. Yes, the henchman. henchman. That's the word I wanted to say. Um, but it's so, Ed Wood, really, that comes to mind for me. Ed Wood, because it was just, it, it, to play Bella Lugosi, to play Bella Lugosi is really hard, and to play him in you sound in like you've tried. Is, oh, from you know, experience, what, <laughs> I know being Bella Lugosi like, is hard. That's what I do. I, I play vampires <laughs> in well, my spare time. He played a larger than life character and a very important character, a character actor, but at a very sad time in his life. Yeah, but but yeah. gave him an enormous amount of humanity. Mm. I mean, I think yeah. Edward is one of you know one of the great films of the nineties. It's definitely one of Tim Burton's best films. Mm. It's one of um, uh, what's his name, Johnny Depp's best. Film. What's his name? He who shall not be named. And I think all who are concerned owe an enormous amount to Landau. Um, I'm one of these many people who listen to Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, and he interviewed Landau not that long ago, like less than a year ago. So it's worth going through the archives to hear that interview because Landau just speaks so vibrantly and openly and he's had a fascinating life and he talks a lot about the craft of acting and it's just a great interview. He yeah he he will be missed. It's sort of he he, he worked regularly. And the, t- and the TV show Space 
1999. <laughs> John, are you a fan? I, try, I was just trying to get Thomas to play the theme song from that. Um, everyone should look it up if, if they don't get a chance. Funky. Having funky, now listened to it futuristic. properly, I do regret that I didn't get myself yeah, organised to play that. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> but we've, we, we have got, we've got heaps to cover tonight, so let's get into it. We're going to look at It Comes at Night. This is a film starring Joel Edgerton as Paul, a man who has barricaded himself and his family inside his house in the country to protect themselves from what appears to be a highly contagious plague. With food, water and information about the outside world running low and paranoia running high, an encounter with another man seeking refuge means that Paul and his family have to start making difficult decisions. It Comes at Night contains many of the conventions of a horror film, but it more resembles a psychological thriller combined with a family drama. <laughs> it Comes at Night is the second feature film by emerging American filmmaker Trey Edward Schultz, whose acclaimed feature film debut, Krisha, was screened at festivals in Australia in 2015. I didn't see that first film, but I did see the short film it was based on, and he's gone in quite a different direction with It Comes at night, it's had so many mixed responses. I think partly mm. because people have expected one thing and got gotten mm. another. I've got no idea what either of you think but of this film. what is it, really? That's the thing. I was expecting is, is it. it to come yeah. at night. Where it, it, was it? it? Well, that, that pretty, sums up, pretty much sums up the film for me. You're expecting it to deliver and it never quite does. It, I found it quite a frustrating experience, which is partly because it is playing with genre yeah. Yeah. And, and it is playing with expectations. There are so many little hooks that it, it, it sets up earlier in the film that then go nowhere. I didn't kind of mind that, yeah. really. I understand the frustration, but I like it as a little work of claustrophobia and paranoia, and mm. I think that's essentially what it's about. I do like works that are like like that, and the, it was all about the suspicion of not trusting each other, although it was very much about trusting your own family and of your own kind. Mm. Um, Joel Edgerton, in another interracial relationship in this um, this film, he seems to be, that seems to be his thing at the moment after our loving um but <laughs> but no well, it's just an odd thing to see an australian you know in this american film uh, it, another it, yeah american but also it's that- sort of points to this film for having that not be an issue yeah i like, like it we were starting yeah. to see something that resembles i think colorblind casting in a positive way i mean yes. we got into this last week where i think it's important yes. to, to acknowledge identity a lot of the time but also i yeah. think it's very important just to start casting people because they're good actors yes mm. yes yes and, and the fact that he's his wife and son are black well this is a, is, this is, is not, a racial film this it's, has it's, nothing it's, it's to not do with part that. of the, the no. plot it's just there yeah it's just there and it's yeah. more the the distrust doesn't come through race or anything like that the distrust just comes through the other basically who is his other man and his yeah, family yeah. can we trust them we want to but can we yeah, yeah. because there's malevolence out there there's a, appears to be a disease but we never really know do no, we no there's a suggestion that it's going to go in a sort of zombie direction and there's a yes. st- there's one scene where there's something lurking in the woods that uh, mm. that, that finishes off the dog uh, that, don't, that? don't oh, no. that's a spoiler <laughs> oh, no. that, don't say that <laughs> We all hope uh, the dog survives. The dog, the dog always dies. That's the point of having a dog in a film, <laughs> yeah, to kill is, the yeah. dog. I am legend. We talked to someone about this before. The fact they dies. kill a dog to, to make you feel sad. Yeah. But if they kill a cat, it's to give you the sense of something sinister, something wrong happening. <laughs> That's it's, a good it's, observation. It's really on, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
that so whenever you see wrong. whenever anyone loves a dog in a film unless it's Snoopy you know <laughs> not going to make the final Scooby reel Doo. that's right I, must, I, I get a bit annoyed when people complain about spoilers for genre films because they're genre films well yes you know oh, it's come like on. Yeah. you saying no that's not right genre films can have um, tricks up their sleeves that the, 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 they can but but, yeah. but discussing a yeah. detail of a film like that I don't think it's, a, it's, it's a bit, going to ruin it your is, experience it is a bit difficult yes but I I, I do like the way I'm okay with a certain amount of ambiguity and I liked the sense that because we never find out exactly what's going on and some threads or most of the threads aren't really followed up on it does engender a sense of paranoia in the audience so we share that sense of claustrophobia and, and paranoia but I just, I just felt that at times it just felt underdeveloped I just I felt that you know with another draft they could have pulled the ideas a bit out of the script a little more it felt to very- deliver a bit it felt very precise to me that they didn't want to deliver any yeah. easily explanations. And I must admit, when the film finished, I kind of sat there and thought, hmm, how do I feel about this? Because I'm enormously unsatisfied, but also I'm aware that my body has been in a state of tension for the entire film, and my mind is now reeling trying to pick up all the various clues and hints as to mm. what may be going on and the red herrings and, and the MacGuffin of what's behind the door at night. And, yeah. Yeah. and I kind of like the way it used or the tropes and cliches of a zombie apocalypse film Mm. and delivered something very different that I think is more... No establishment at all. We're just thrown into the thick of their reality. We don't know how it's come about. It's Mm. not like... It's sort of like... We know it really is happening. It's not like... 28 days later on later, later. Right. (laughs) It's it's not like 10 Cloverfield Lane where there's the idea that it might all be made up in the head of the main character. I haven't even seen that film. (laughs) It's It's good. (laughs) Just because it's a genre film, Thomas, don't think you can throw spoilers around. Welcome to Spoilers Cave, where we... We, we ruin all your film viewing experiences. Um, oh, dear, I'm sorry. Um, this film, It Comes at Night, makes it very clear at the start what is going on is really going on. Mm. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, the, the other thing I really enjoyed about this is just, just uh, two things I want to mention is technically those beautiful sort of Steadicam still takes down the, down the, the, the darkened rooms. I mm. felt, you know, built tension beautifully. And I also thought the acting in this film was really, really strong stronger than usual for the type of film. It was great. Yeah. Especially mm. the son, the, the, the kid who played the son, who I think did kind of terrified and grief-stricken really convincingly. <laughs> the he, son who was called Travis, I thought, it, it didn't seem like a very African-American name. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a family that's moved beyond that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Spoilers I and racism here on Plato's <laughs> He was, I mean, he was an interesting <laughs> character too. I really <laughs> like Travis. Tra- he was... Eddie Travis is out there. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, Travis. Travis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, he was, he was, as you say, beautifully played. But there was also, I'm not sure how sympathetic a character he was. He was the, obviously the focus, I think, of the audience's sympathy. But he was also a bit of a stalker. Yeah. Yes. There, was, there was some kind of uncomfortable sexual tension yeah, that's that never little, fully explored that there. That strange, that. I thought that I, I know what you're referring to and I wasn't sure whether there was maybe something extra have, was written in and then was taken out yeah, with that. Because it was only very slight little thing. It was really that he was, I guess, the central character and Joel Edgerton had a little bit of going on, like, 
like um, uh, Hugh Jackman in Prisoners. Do you know what I mean? The guy that the kind of father that could be a little bit sort of more unhinged and yeah, go down mm-hmm. the, the the wrong road. Um, and uh, you know that idea of that the, what people will do in desperate situations. I think even Joel Edgerton's character says that in reference to other people, but it sort of echoes himself in it. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't a very pretty film, though. I didn't think it was. It built the tension very well, but I don't think it was quite a beautiful film. You know how you get sort of beautiful horror, or I think I see beautiful yeah, horror I, films. Oh, no, sure. I think. Yeah, I didn't. We've I didn't talked feel about that. that before. Yeah, yeah mm. I didn't feel that much, and 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 was I didn't read up about it before going into it, so it was a little bit of a surprise of what it was. But um, no, I thought it was solid. Nothing to super ride home about, but it was solid. Mm. Mm. My enthusiasm for it has has died off a little since I saw it, but I, th- I think it's yeah. a really fascinating exercise in creating tension with maximum ambiguity. Mm. And yeah. I think it, it may frustrate some, but um, I, I kind of just enjoyed that almost attached kind of being impressed by the fact that it didn't deliver on the goods and yet still had me in the palm of its hand for the running time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I felt it was just it was kind of superficial but very powerful. Mm. It comes at night. It's been out for a couple of weeks now and it's still playing in cinemas around Melbourne. You're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Mike and Emma. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Baby Driver is the new film by British writer-director Edgar Wright, who is best known for films such as Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and Scott Pilgrim versus The World. Contain your excitement. We're knocking things over in the studio. He's shaking his tail feather. He's also... Uh, Edgar Wright, of course, many people know him from the cult TV series Spaced. So Baby Driver is a sort of heist film about a young getaway driver named Baby who is reluctantly working off a debt to a powerful and dangerous gangster. Due to a childhood injury, Baby has to continually listen to music through earphones in order to manage his tinnitus. Did I say that right? Yeah. Good. The resulting film is a blend of comedy, action and car chases that is choreographed to the music Baby listens to. I'm going to play an interview I did in a moment with uh, with uh, Edgar Wright. But before we get into that, I'd love to know what you two think about Baby Driver. Let's give it our critical appraisal. Mm. I really loved this film. Yeah, I mean, me I, <laughs> it's, it's obviously not without its flaws, but Everyone I was prepared to completely, completely overlook those. It's just had such a sense of joy to it. I think that was what really sort of... Drove it. Uh, drove I mean, it. It drove it. Drove oh, that's it. good. I wasn't even trying to squeeze oh, in that man, uh, um, park that there. Um, I, I just, I mean, the music obviously is a large part of it. As we talked about there, and uh, I was really sucked in by a lot of those music choices. It's, it's every single track they played in that, that film. I was sort of punching the air. And going, this, 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 this. I can't believe the song hasn't been used in a film before. Notably, uh, Focus's track Hocus Pocus, which is used during a very entertaining chase sequence, which uh, I, I didn't know anyone else even knew existed. So that was very gratifying. But it's a, it's a really, it's just a fun film. It's a fantastical film. I don't think it's supposed to be remotely realistic. It's probably least successful when it tries to edge towards realism. But it's a great, glorious rom com for teenage boys. I think. <laughs> rom-com for teenage boys I, I, I was talking to um, Faith our podcast producer before this uh, before this show and because I, I said I'll, I'll sound like the sad sack because I didn't love um, love this I'm probably the only person in the world who's saying this at the moment oh, but there's descenders but, out there, there are, are there, yeah, are there? we're okay. having them round I up haven't, round I haven't actually you'll get to know them well we'll all be standing in the naughty corner um, but no no I, I like the film I just didn't love the film. That's 
That's perfectly acceptable. So this is where I said to I said to Faith, this is where you come on a show like this, and when there's this this wave of absolute love for something, to just say you liked it sounds like that you're a complete naysayer, and you know you you're going in the opposite direction. So it always sounds like you're the one you know dissing it. So I don't want to diss it. I didn't feel that way about it. Um, but I, in terms of, I, I, I judge films by. I, I have this. <laughs> this is a confession. I tend to cry a lot during films, not just because I'm emotional, but because I like a special effect, or I think a scene's mm. pretty cool, or something like that, or I laugh, or whatever. And I, I, I remember getting welling up during the credit sequence of "Do the Right Thing," Spike Lee's "Do oh, the Right Thing." I will up every time I see that sequence. Yeah, because yeah. I, I went that music and that, and then there were moments in Boogie Night with you know Jesse's girl played over that scene and there's the opening to Reservoir Dogs and numerous moments in Quentin Tarantino films. I'll have to give it to him. I know Alex doesn't like him, but uh, there's... She's not here. She's not here. Say what she's not like. here. Say Let's what you like. Her. Yeah. Um, the, the, I find that Tarantino's use of music is just... You know, I felt this film showed me how good that was because I didn't get the gut punch I get from that sort of thing. I only, I only got a bit teary in the opening um, car chase sequence. Really? Yes. You cried at the car chase sequence. Uh, I, I, yeah, this is a big confession, but I often tear up during things that I go, "Oh my god, that's really? amazing!" Yeah, I, I found since I yeah, turned I'm thirty, bit, I just, I'm a bit like that you're too. like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sucks, I just cry at absolutely everything since yeah. I turned thirty. I didn't cry at this film. <laughs> Uh, I'm alive. And perhaps that's right. Just, just <laughs> glad to be here. Um, and possibly that that is a, a point of concern. Perhaps it didn't have any sort of deep moments of emotion. I think certainly the female characters are, are, are pretty poorly. Or, <laughs> I thought or, the female characters were terrible. Superficial. <laughs> it's probably. I find Deborah really annoying, and the other one a complete cliche. But that doesn't look, you know. They were, they were the weaker part of the film. For they sure. were the weaker mm-hmm. part of the film. I don't, I don't think anybody's making the characters. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't find it as cool as I thought it was going to be. So, see, this is where I'm starting to sound like the person who hated it. Yeah, I, nice. didn't Fair enough. Sa- I didn't hate it at all. I, I'm coming off the back of reading a 12-part um, tweet from Guillermo del Toro that was just raving about this film in the way that it was a complete game changer but also reading into it he's a buddy of Edgar Wright so he's pretty pleased with what he'd done and and fair enough he was totally amped but you know it went completely over the top but that said it's a it's a really safe choice to just go and have a good night at the cinema really it's great fun yeah yeah, I, I did. It's interesting hearing you describe how you get emotional over films when they just nail a scene and it all comes together. Mm. I see it. The opening of Do the Right Thing I've seen billions of times. Oh. I often just watch it to energise me, but often it leaves me sobbing because it's just so powerful. And I get the same kind of kick from, yeah, a lot of Quentin Tarantino's films. And I, I certainly got it in this film, especially during the, the opening car chase and then the opening number over the opening credits. Oh, we cried mm. at the same moment. Yeah, there Thomas. we go. Uh, <laughs> I could have dabbed your eyes with my handkerchief. And I think. <laughs> Part of what makes this film part of I'm glad share, share, share my damn handkerchief. That yes. would have been weird. Um, I think part of my enjoyment of this film was just how it, it's a total pastiche of obviously car chase films, mm. many from the seventies, but also it's it kind of has the rhythm of a musical. I mean, a lot of this mm. film is edited and choreographed to music, like you'd expect mm. in a musical. And in fact, that was my first question to Edgar Wright. I will play that interview now. So I began by asking him about the, the, the genre of of Baby Driver. When I pitched the idea. I said that it was like a car movie driven by music. I I stopped short with using the word musical because 
it doesn't do a number of things that musicals do. Nobody ever sings out loud. You know, there's not group dancing. It's more the fact that Ansel Elgort, who plays Baby, is lost in his own little world of music because he's always plugged into his iPod. Or there's always music playing somewhere. He uses music to motivate him. So I think there's like little parts of it where, you know, you're inspired by things like Gene Kelly or... um uh, you know, Jacques Demi. Um, but these were sort of things that are little kind of like grace notes. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of the, the choreography in it is very subtle. It's like choreography to do with action or choreography in sort of tension scenes. Um, and in fact, the choreographer that I used, this guy Ryan Heffington, who did, who's most famous for Sears Chandelier video. So it's a bit, a little bit more sort of contemporary and you know, different than what you would traditionally would think of in terms of, it's not a dance movie per se, but it is something that's completely 100% choreographed in music. And I think that's the thing that really struck me when watching this, is just how integral the music was to the rhythm of every single scene. I mean, it's, it's just so beautifully edited and choreographed. And so I was wondering how much of the film was specifically designed around each song that appears in the film. Every scene was um, was choreographed around the music. I mean, the music was written into the script and those songs were cleared before we started filming and we shot the scenes to the songs. So it's not, no, not, not to take away from my amazing editors, but it's not entirely done in the edit. You know, we are like choreographing the scenes to the songs and in some cases doing large portions of it, you know, to the playback. So when we're on set, Usually, like, at least one of the actors is listening to the songs. Ansel Elgort is nearly always listening to the music. And sometimes the other actors are listening to it as well, if it's something where they are sort of magically in time with the track. So it's an amazing experience to do that and, like, get actors and also stunt guys to kind of, like, do stuff in time with the music. And all the music is diegetic, isn't it? Yeah. There's uh, there's some bits of score sometimes when when Baby's music is taken away from him and you have some more kind of tense score cues that Stephen Price did, um, but his score probably only comprises comprises like uh, twenty minutes of the film, twenty five minutes. But there's thirty five songs in the movie and they're all diegetic within the film, meaning you hear them out loud. They are being played within the scene, either on headphones or a radio or in a department store or you know on a stereo which is something i'm a huge fan of as someone who has collected soundtracks for years the first film that sprung to mind actually watching this was american graffiti and then i thought of a lot of tarantino's films because they have a similar thing going on are you a big fan of film soundtracks and do you have a collection of soundtracks yourself absolutely i mean i i when i was a teenager or even before that I would be collecting film soundtracks and a lot of music that I love I sort of found through like that artist appearing in films. So I I, I, I could think if I thought if I picked like four or well, I'd go five and then I got two by the same director, but if I said about five soundtracks that made a lot to me, um, it would be American Graffiti, uh, The Blues Brothers, American Wealth in London, those two John Landis films. Um Goodfellas and Reservoir Dogs. I mean, all of Quentin's soundtracks, but Reservoir Dogs was the first one I heard, and I thought this, the use of music in that was extraordinary. If there's another like album that's kind of in te- that's an interesting precedent to this, which is not an, a soundtrack album of existing songs, but The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is an interesting one because obviously that's one of the greatest scores of all time. The other interesting thing about The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly 
which is something that's similar to this movie, is that Ennio Morricone had done that score before they started shooting. And they played that scoring on set, which to me is like a mind blower. And it actually, to me, explains the style and the poise of that movie. Because, you know, when you get to that end scene in The Good and the Ugly in the cemetery and they have their final standoff, imagine then that Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach are listening to that music. And it definitely, you know, it... it, 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 it it gives you the poise. It gives you the sort of the confidence to kind of carry off those big pauses and the almost operatic sort of staginess of it. It just totally works. And so, you know, we had moments in this where there's, there's a very tense scene in a diner that's all set to Barry White. And it has much longer pauses than you might find in a normal scene. But it's because Barry White is dominating the scene and the actors could all hear it so in that scene like all three actors that are in the scene can hear barry white and it's kind of basically governing their timing it's exactly my favorite type of soundtrack and i I rushed out and bought the soundtrack after i saw the film which i I rarely do these days i feel like the art of the film soundtrack has has slipped by somewhat in general so i'm curious to know how you compiled all these songs as well because it's a really eclectic mix um and i was wondering if that was partly to reflect that that people who are the age of the lead characters in the film now have absolutely everything available to them at their fingertips which us older generation people didn't. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, sometimes I've read some reviews where they sort of put a question mark as to whether a 20-year-old would be listening to that music. And I don't think that's entirely true because I think a lot of, like, young music fans who are interested in music listen to everything. And what they do, though, in this day and age, which is different from what we did, is people listen to music without context. Because once things are on sort of Spotify or they're just streaming or even you're buying things digitally, you know, people don't really um, look at like cover art anymore. They buy the songs because they like the songs. And so it's an interesting thing that I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it's only the songs remain. The actual like artist image and the context of the song and what was happening in the release culturally, some of that stuff falls away and it's just the song that remains. So I like this idea that Baby is a character who like, obviously like sort of music is an escape for him, but he's also through a number of different sources built up this extremely eclectic listening, um, you know, kind of taste. But a key line in the movie which the studio at one point asked me to cut out because they said it made, they thought it made Baby sound dumb. And I said, this is a really key line for me and I'm not taking it out, was when he's talking about Deborah by T-Rex to Lily James, but he says it's the, the song is by Trex. And she says, T-Rex? And he goes, oh, yeah, sure. Now, that to me is a key thing because it's sort of... I think everybody's done that, where you've never said something out loud and then you get it wrong and somebody corrects you and you think... Uh, Deborah, Lily James's character, will have forgotten about that in 45 seconds, but you will never forget that mistake for the rest of your life. <laughs> like so, and actually, it's one of my favorite bits of Ansel's acting is his, the, his face falling when he realizes that he screwed up the name of a band in front of this girl that he likes is just priceless. I love it. So it's little things like that that I think really make the movie. But my other theory about... Um, What's funny, somebody said to me the other day on Twitter, they said, as a vinyl collector, I love Baby Driver, but I cannot believe it's that easy to find a Carla Thomas uh, album in in a a secondhand record store. (laughs) I say, well, you say that, but we got all of the albums that are in the movie from secondhand record stores in Atlanta, including like the Blur album. So, you know, I I thought that myself. I thought, well, would a 20-year-old, how would he know an album cut from Sheer Heart Attack? And then we went into this place called Criminal Records in Atlanta 
and which is like a real hipster sort of uh, record store. And in pride of place, there was like a reissue of Sheer Heart Out by Queen. I said, there you go, that's how he knows it. The other theory I have about the movie is that you sort of establish in his backstory that he's been stealing cars and joyriding from a very early age, since he was like t- uh, 10. Since he was old enough to see over the dash, as they say. So since he was 10 or 12, he's been like joyriding cars. And I thought, well, if you were stealing cars and joyriding, <laughs> the two things that you would inherit is a lot of sunglasses and a lot of listening devices. So my theory is that he has a lot of other people's iPods. So there's a scene in the diner where he pulls out this iPod that's a pink and glittery one, and it's clearly a woman's iPod. And uh, I think he's listening to other people's record collection. That's Edgar Wright speaking about the film Baby Driver, which he wrote and directed. You're listening to Plato's Cave. Uh, I'm going to play the second part of that interview in just a moment. But first, this. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. On Plato's Cave, we've been listening to an interview with the baby dri- baby driver writer director Edgar Wright. We're going to go back to that interview now, uh, where I asked him about lead actor Ansel Elgert. In fact, before we talked to Edgar Wright, so to speak, Mike, <laughs> you got to interview the lead actor Ansel Elgert. Yeah, what were no, your impressions of him? Uh, I, I liked him very much. He's a very charming uh, young man. He was, uh, you know, he has that. Um, I think the reason that Baby works, his character Baby works so well in this film, is that. I Oh, he's got that swagger and is ridiculously cool as this male fantasy figure of this ace driver who only listens to the best music and wears some very cool sunglasses. Um, Despite having that, he's got this great mixture of extreme confidence, sort of swagger and and naivety. I think that uh, that came across in person. He's very sweet. I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to call him naive necessarily, but he's just very sweet. There's this real sort of appealing vulner- vulnerability to him. I, I saw him as a sort of boy, very boyish Paul Newman. Yes, yeah, absolutely. There is a, a classic kind of um, film star quality to him. I mean, I know he was named as a possible young Han Solo, and actually watching Baby Driver, I started thinking, yeah, that, that I could can work. actually kind of yeah. see this. Maybe he would have been a good pick. But uh, he told me that he was actually more interested in... Uh, Lord of the Rings. So he'd rather be a hobbit than Han <laughs> Solo. Oh, Not a Star Wars fan. God, he's dead to me now. Big Lord of the Rings fan. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear what Edgar Wright had to say about his leading actor. The thing that's amazing about Ansel is that he's, you know, he was he's very much a millennial. He was born in 1994, I think. However, he's got this old soul quality to him. And I think it's because his, his dad is older than my dad. And I think because of that, there are certain things that he doesn't know because he was born in 1994 and he's still kind of catching up or like just immersing himself in culture and then there's some things that he does know really well and so that would always like take me by surprise and then there'd be a particular film or a particular album or a particular show that he would know off by heart and in fact actually the inclusion of easy by the commodores on the soundtrack came about because i did an audition with him and you know he hadn't had a chance to learn the songs from the movie that much so i said what song do you know off by heart that you could lip sync in its entirety right now and he said easy by the commodores i was thinking well that's interesting i said how do you know that song and he said oh my godmother gave it to me on a a playlist i got a mix cd and that was a song that i really loved so again he's listening to it without context and um 
and loved that song and knew it off by heart. So, and I wrote Easy into the film after we'd done this crazy audition piece. That's certainly my experience of people that age as well. I'm, I'm constantly blown away by what they know. Yeah. Um, and often it puts me into shame. So look, it's been less than two decades since you really first made your mark in a huge way with the television series Spaced. And, and since then, the popularity and the influence of geek culture and popular culture has been huge. I don't think anyone predicted it would be where it's at today. So I'm really curious to know what you make of the current media landscape where comic books and horror films and computer games are now so mainstream. And can you see, can you see where you fit in with the current zeitgeist? I don't know, that's a good question. I mean, I find it funny sometimes when people sort of, like, say, kind of, like, sort of geekiness... So it seems to be kind of uh, equated with being culty. But the thing is, Star Wars was one of the most successful films of all time. So that's like firmly always been in the mainstream. There was never a point where like Star Wars was a niche thing. Star Wars, when it came out in 1977, was like a monster box office hit. So it is an odd thing. I mean, I think sort of, um, you know, I think the thing with culty kind of stuff is it's something that you want to be passionate about as your you know, that's something that you want to, you feel like you belong. And I think with a lot of things of like, the the traditional idea of cult movies is something where it's something that people feel like they own it or they want to share it with other people. So I don't know. I think the sort of the landscape has completely changed where... It's it's tricky. I don't really know whether sort of like the even that qualifies as kind of geeky material. I think things have just gone fully mainstream. Um, that comic, you know, sort of comic book movies are sort of are the mainstream, and so are like sort of a lot of the big sci-fi franchises. So I don't know. My my only thing that I kind of and and the fact that Baby Driver has been a success in the United States in a summer full of part fives and remakes and reboots is something that. Even if I wasn't involved in the film, I would be thrilled about because Hollywood needs to make more original movies as well. And I think what happens is that there's such a focus on like branded entertainment and existing IP, as they call it. And what people then tend to make a kind of like a, a line in the sand where they think, oh, there's all the franchise movies and then anything on the other side is avant-garde and niche or like an awards film. But Hollywood, the independent sector is, is not in peril. I mean, there's sort of amazing independent films being made. What should be, uh, there should be more of is more like sort of um, mainstream original movies because what people forget is that in 1977, Star Wars was an original screenplay. And in 1979, Alien was an original screenplay. And in 1984, The Terminator was an original screenplay. And I think we just need to have more original mainstream movies that actually, it's good for the business and it's good for the future of film history because we can't subsist on the same 25 franchises forever. And I say that as somebody who enjoys some of those movies and looks forward to some of those movies. Not all of them. And some of them I have stopped watching those series because I'm thinking, you know what, I've seen three of these and I, I, I ducked out for four and five. Or like sort of there's a certain point in like, you know, a, a, a franchise movies where there's eight of them is looking, you know what? Seven was the last one I paid to see at the cinema and I didn't see eight and I'm not going to go and see nine. I'm done. That was me talking to Edgar Wright, the actor, uh, the, the writer and the director of Baby Driver. You're listening to Plato's Cave. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. 
The Beguiled is the new film by Sofia Coppola of The Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation fame. And as we discussed on the show a few weeks ago, it is a new adaptation of the 1971 novel uh, that was originally titled A Painted Devil, which was first adapted to screen with the title The Beguiled in 1971 by Don Siegel. Now, in this new film, Colin Farrell plays the role originally played by Clint Eastwood, that is, of an injured Union soldier during the American Civil War, who is taken in by the remaining staff and students at a girls' school in Confederate territory. The rest of the cast includes Nicole Kidman as the head of the school, Kirsten Dunst as the shy teacher who falls in love with him, and Elle Fanning as a, as a seductive older student. Coppola recently won the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival for this film. Now, Mark, a few weeks ago when you were mm. on the show with myself and Alex, we talked about the original. We did. Mm, and I haven't heard what you said. You didn't listen back? No, I haven't had time. Shame on you. I was too busy holidaying. Uh, well, Alex was a huge fan and I think you and I found it curious. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. No. I love it. You're like Alex, like are Alex, you? Alex, yeah. The I original? Love I love the original, yes. Yeah. I absolutely love I it. I like it more the more I thought about it and I, I think I like it more having now seen the sequel of the mm. sequel the remake The Beguiled <laughs> 2 Back to the House Back to the Schoolhouse um, Good work as a sequel <laughs> I can see a sequel here Yeah um, Sort of zombie Eastwood and Farrell teaming up <laughs> to get their revenge <laughs> I think what I've liked about the first one thinking more about it is that and it's, I think it's one of the reasons I'm increasingly drawn to older films not, not just that I myself obviously am rapidly getting older is that I think with a film like the Beguiled, the original, the limits are really less rigidly defined than I think they are now. Uh, there's a se- real sense of inappropriateness yeah, to much of that film. That's why it's uh, so good. And that I think this, this film... like me. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, this film felt safer and uh, you know, I think part of the appeal of the first is its wrongness. I mean, the whole idea of this uh, this soldier being uh, marooned in this this house of uh, of libidinous young women, um, you know, it has a sort of unsavoury ickiness to it from the the moment when mm. Clint kisses a thirteen year old because she's old enough. Uh, she's not quite thirteen. Not quite, not, not quite <laughs> she's 12, 13, twelve. Yeah, twelve years old enough to kiss. Yeah, yeah. old, enough, old to enough for kisses. And you have right. yeah. 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 it's um, deeply kind of uncomfortable. Like the the and I say in quotation marks the uncle. Would right. say, you know, uh, yeah, wrong. And there's there's Miss Martha's incestuous past, and even the his um his downfall in in the original is is so bloody and savage. He's he's also a much more manipulative character in the original film to what Colin Farrell plays. I think yeah. Colin Farrell's character has more of a victim edge. He's far more vulnerable, particularly yeah, in the first half. Yeah, he is. He uh, is, and they kind of I guess make him a little bit more likable. That's what I felt. It's more. Yeah. It's more drama dance the first film. Now, see, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to jump in and do a comparison between mm. the original of The Beguiled and the remake, but for some reason it's just a I film that begs it a little bit. I think it's appropriate because they're extraordinarily similar. I mean, the, mm. the actual story is the same in both films, but the emphasis is very different. So I think a comparison is quite relevant. Well, only broad overarching story. I felt that the, the really the dramatic grit of the first film was lost. The, the, the yeah. emphasis was different. Yeah, 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 very much so. I think actually the the Coppola Beguiled is much more influenced by something like Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, it's more of a mood, a mood style piece than getting into that substance because I felt that mm. in the original film and without giving away spoilers, there's a the end scene is uh, in the original is supercharged and dramatic mm. and it 
doesn't quite have that in the Coppola film. It doesn't. It kind of showed me that she is a better director than writer and I've kind of always felt that about her work. Um, She she, she obviously, she chose not to deal with the the race issue in the film because that was more pronounced in the the Mm. first film. In fact, she removed the character of the maid, the African-American maid, who was my favourite character in the original film. I loved her because she had the best lines and she was just, you know, she was fast with the quips and I really enjoyed that. But um, And I thought that she added a lot to it as well. She gives a bit of an outside perspective. Yeah, she does. She? And she was the one that was sort of immune to the, the conniving. The Eastwood and the, Yeah, but also, you know, she was just not a part of the female throng either. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, it was... But the, the couple of film was very good at creating that intense mood, that s- sort of buzz of cicadas, the, the haziness of the, the heat, those mm. beautiful weeping willows and everything. It's an absolutely exquisite film. It did look like sometimes the lens needed a bit of a wipe-off. It's <laughs> like when I first take a picture on my iPhone and realise I've got greasy handprints on the, the, the camera lens. But, <laughs> the, the Vaseline um, on the lens. Yes, yeah. 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 But uh, absolutely beautiful. Nicole Kidman, I don't know what she was doing in that film. She didn't work for me at all. I felt she felt odd and wedged in. Yeah, I felt she was a bit odd too. I mean, I agree it's a very beautiful film. It has a kind of stagnant beauty, I think, which is quite appropriate for its its swampy swampy setting. But uh, it has certainly lost the danger that the original one had. I mean, you mentioned the final scene there. There's a key beat of drama which is missed, Mm -hmm. which just seems a bizarre omission. And throughout, there's not much of a sense of drama. But Nicole Kidman's character, I think, exposes how much the, the characters have had their motivations and their backstories stripped away. Mm. That they are far more slight than in the original. I expected the, the female characters to be a little more fleshed out. I think what is very good at, she creates um, the dynamics between the characters has improved. I think there's a more complex interaction between these community of, of women. But particularly with Miss Martha and Nicole Kidman's character, there's no sense of the repressed sexuality, I think, that the She's also a bit too... And... She's a bit too pretty and that character had more of a dowdy edge, which I thought right. worked better. Yeah. Better. Yeah. I'm dying to jump in to completely disagree with everything. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. I, I, oh, much, yeah. I much, much, much preferred this new version wow. significantly. And okay. I, but I think for similar reasons. I just think it worked better as a dramatic piece where the first one is more kind of an exploitation film. And maybe mm. it just might be down to tastes. But I... There's I, nothing wrong with exploitation No, I know films. that. I know that. It, it, it's, it's awfully fashionable as well at the moment. But um, sorry, that sounds really condescending. Yeah. <laughs> just slightly. Sorry. What are you saying? <laughs> Travis. <laughs> Just because we've been reading our film trends monthly and worked out no. exploitation is where it's at. I feel yes. that some... <laughs> We're, we've got our fingers <laughs> on the pulse. I'm not suggesting you're doing this, but I sometimes hear people say, oh, but it's an exploitation film as a free pass to something that's just a bit crap. No. Right. You know I, what I mean? I, I, no, I'm not suggesting yeah. you're doing that in this case. But, um, it's, but uh, I, look, I, yeah, let's get back to what I liked about this <laughs> new one. Um, yes. I thought it just works so much more dramatically. I, I like the toning down of the, the, the hysteronics and I like the fact that they felt like better characters. And I think the Nicole Kidman character was dialed down, but on the other hand, the Kirsten Dunst character character was really enhanced. Absolutely. And that was a really beautiful character who I think was far more three-dimensional in this new version than the kind of the mousy version we saw in the original. I like the mousy one. I liked her fragility. I liked the way he really played on that. I Mm. think that they're types in the first one. In this new one, they're characters. But I 
Uh, I think so much of that is down to the performance from Kirsten Dunst. I don't think there's any more to that character in this script, but I think she just she brings a real heart to it. I mean, I I felt a lot more for that character. She felt felt more like a real character to me than the sort of archetypal stereotype of the the original. Yeah, for sure. I didn't feel like that at all. I thought the original. I especially thought that the young girl was better in the original as well. I mean, look, yes, there were more histrionics, but I think that's more of a sort of film of its time as well. That was more of a oh for sure style of the style of acting but that little girl the little the 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 12 slash 13 year old girl relationship with him um was far more pronounced in the first film and and far more um tragic i felt Mm. i felt that was a really sad relationship and there was no connection really in this film i I felt it in this original one as well in the the remake yeah Yeah, yeah. in this remake or this new adaptation okay and i i like the fact his character was not necessarily softened but made more ambiguous you didn't know where this guy was coming from mm. and even at the very end of the film you weren't too sure how you felt about his fate either i mean i, I think they played with sympathies a lot more in this film well, ultimately s- though it was the look of it that won me over i mean it was oh, the, it's stunning. it was it's the absolutely dreamlike stunning. feel i, I really yeah. and the boredom they played up the boredom very well kind I of felt language in, this, is, yeah. in this remake which was not so much the case in the first film the, the, they, this they, felt very connected to the version suicides i think picnic at hanging yeah. rocks a really good call and the version suicides is certainly doing a similar thing in yeah, suburbia absolutely, i think yeah. i think it, this is a closer film to the virgin suicides than say the original the beguiled right mm, um mm, mm. And i'd agree but I th- it doesn't have that kind of wicked darkness for me of the the virgin yeah. suicides no it's I not like on the same level yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that but it's it's i've liked this film more than her previous films since lost in translation mm. like, I, I think it's the best thing I, I think it's the best yeah. thing she's done since lost in translation yep mm. um i kind of wish i had seen it in isolation actually i think i think maybe the comparison doesn't that's what i'm wondering I, i'm wondering how, yes that's why i didn't mm. want and all we've done is make comparisons i mean yeah. that's why i didn't want to because i felt that in some ways i'd be interested to see what this film would be like if you hadn't have seen mm. the first film and certainly from the audience that i was in people who hadn't seen the first were shocked by it you know yeah. there were little moments of drama there was the gasps and sort of uh, yeah. the horror of it so perhaps perhaps we have maybe been spoiled maybe it's better seeing them the other way around maybe it is maybe, maybe see this one first I think that could be the case yeah. let's, let's put that out to our we, audience as a suggestion alright we can agree on that <sighs> Tonight on Plato's Cave, it comes at night. That's on general release through Roadshow Films. Baby Driver is on general release through Sony Pictures. And The Beguiled is on limited release through Universal Pictures. You've been listening to Thomas Cordell, Emma Westwood, and our special guest presenter, Mike Bartlett, on Plato's Cave. Thank you again, Mike. Oh, always a pleasure. The Gentleman's Critic. The gentleman's I did hear critic. that bit. I heard, I heard one show. <laughs> I'm the Whitney Show. <laughs> the podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. As I mentioned on next week's show, we're going to do an extended tribute to George A. Romero. We're also going to take a look at the new Christopher Nolan film, Done. Kirk. But for now, it's good night from us. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.